The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com disclosures. So Morgan and Fareed, thank you so much for joining. I'm going to go ahead and like officially kick us off here. Um, if it's their first time on 4B, uh, this is the A16Z show for unfiltered comms and marketing advice. It is normally hosted by Margaret, who's the head of marketing at A16Z. Um, but as Tina mentioned, Margaret is out today. So you have Tina and I instead as your, your lovely moderators. Um, and we're going to be talking all about um, one of the biggest buzzwords among founders and startup marketers, which is this idea of growth hacking. So as a term, growth hacking was coined by Sean Ellis back in 2010, and it refers to kind of taking a data-driven approach and like more experiment-based process uh, to how startups will grow their company, um, especially when those startups are really resource or budget constrained. Um, it's become like a really popular concept, concept, but it's a lot more nuanced, I think, than we often give it credit for. So that's what we're going to be talking about and debating today is how can startups implement growth hacking methods to scale their business? And we have, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, some of the very best in the business with this. So I'd love to get a chance for, you know, Morgan Fried and Andrew, for you guys to introduce yourselves. Um, and since the topic is growth hacking, could you, in addition to kind of giving your own background around growth hacking, talk about when did you first hear the term and why did you decide to go into growth hacking as kind of your, your specialty field? Uh, Morgan, you want to start? Or sorry, Andrew, I saw you come off mute. Go ahead. No, no, I was I was actually going to suggest that Morgan Morgan start because Morgan Morgan worked on 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 a book with John, so I, I I feel like that's a good that's a good starting point. Well, there we go. So a little bit of an intro there, Morgan. What what's your background? Sure. Yeah. I, so um, I'm the VP of uh, growth or a VP of growth at uh, Shopify. We have a, a few of us there. Um, I'm responsible for the acquisition of the merchants that that use Shopify and their success on the platform. So really focused on um, bringing Shopify to the world and, and making uh, merchants of all types uh, really successful on it. Prior to that, I was a product director at Facebook in the Messenger org, building new messaging experiences, and then have spent basically 20 years at the intersection of digital marketing and product, uh, which you know we we call growth uh, today, and and so I think that's really kind of the the hint of of how I got interested in it is um, I started uh, working my career. My first job was at an internet uh, company back in um, 1999, so right at the height of the dot com com bubble, and and after that bubble popped. I went to a digital marketing agency, kind of like a, a Razorfish, um, where we were kind of building websites. So this is the 2000, so building websites for a lot of uh, companies, uh, learning about uh, customer acquisition strategies on the web. So early SEO, um, buying banners, um, all of that, all of those types of uh, traditional uh, digital marketing tactics that you would kind of understand them as today. But some of the other things that we did is we were building online tools. Um, we were building communities. Uh, we were building online calculators and these very like lightweight products uh, on the web. And those grew and, and attracted much larger audiences uh, on kind of a compounding ongoing basis, uh, you know, far above kind of what you would get out of running a week's worth of banner ads on AltaVista or something like that at the time. And that kind of was the very start of 
of what kind of piqued my interest of how you could build things and how you could use the leverage of software applied to customer acquisition and um, and kind of business outcomes uh, to something really powerful, which ultimately Sean coined as as kind of growth hacking. Um, and so when he wrote that blog post, or when Andrew wrote the blog post about the um, uh, you know um, the growth hackers of the new VP marketing was kind of like the aha moment where it was like, oh, that's the kind of stuff that I've been doing, uh, but didn't really have a name for it, a good way to explain it. And so, um, you know, kind of subsequent to that, I think there's been a lot of evolution in the space. I actually, you know, the term growth hacking makes my skin crawl a little bit now because it's been, it's been so beat up and kind of so, uh, appropriated in a bunch of different ways, but this idea, (laughs) this idea, yeah, this idea of, of product led growth of this kind of fusion of marketing and product very tightly coupled with leverage out of software is still really fascinating in, in what I do today. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, I was just going to contribute uh, another piece of the story with, with Sean Ellis. Yeah. So I think there was a, there was a, a, a brunch or something with Sean Ellis and Heaton Shaw and some other people where they were describing, you know, kind of, kind of this thing. Um, and, and, and that this is where they, they coined the name and, and, and the reason for it because was because um, Sean Ellis, uh, you know, had, had basically been consulting with a bunch of, um, venture capital firms and their portfolio companies. And one of the things that, you know, and this is a little bit of a, a counter reaction to um, a lot of what marketing, you know, capital M marketing had been at the time, which is that when he would, you know, um, introduce himself and, you know, and, and, and start working with some of the, you know, various VC firms, you know, their portfolio companies, including Eventbrite and Dropbox and, you know, some of these early successes, um, they would ask him, "Oh, so well, you know, Sean, like this is great that you can help me, but like, what do you, you know, um, like t- tell me, tell me more about what you do. Like, how how do you how do you do it?" And he found that whenever he led with uh, the term marketing, that people would just like super cringe and just think they're like, "So you're gonna what? You're gonna buy like you know, you're gonna buy uh, like Super Bowl ads? You know, it's sort of sort of like marketing had had been given a bad name, I think, in the early." kind of, you know, 2000s period, like the dot-com period, because everybody had sort of thought that it was sort of like relatively inefficient kind of like quote-unquote brand building, um, you know, when when really what the companies needed was sort of like, um, you know, a, like very metrics-driven, um, you know, approaches to this. And so he started, you know, kind of just using like, as many of you guys know, in, in, in the tech industry, um, kind of building on the term hacker, which is often meant in a good way, not not like you know bad hacking, but like you know like 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 somebody who's very technically proficient is sometimes also called a hacker. And he was he basically was like, well, I'm just going to call that you know I'm a, I'm I'm a growth hacker, and off you go. So anyway, this was this was relayed to me, um, you know uh, uh, you know all in a in a conversation that I had with Sean, and then basically months later, as Morgan was, you know um, alluded to. I think this was in 2010 or something like that. I ended up writing a blog post where I was like, you know, I, really the blog post was actually about Airbnb. The blog post was actually about how I was seeing Airbnb have have these really interesting set of features where um, it would allow Airbnb hosts to post on Craigslist. And I wanted to write a post just about that. Um, but then as I was writing it, I was like, oh, it's so super niche. Maybe I should write kind of a broader piece about how like the the type of person who comes up with an idea like this is like kind of a new type of, um, you know, person that's not like a Steve Jobs style, like product UX kind of person. 
but is also not somebody that's sitting around thinking about like marketing campaigns and ad agencies and so on. It's somebody that maybe like combines the two worlds together. And so that's where, that's where, um, you know, growth hackers and new VP of marketing. And I kind of, I kind of picked that title to be a little bit trollish because it sort of meant that everybody who had the title of marketing was immediately like repulsed by it <laughs> as, as a, you know, it was, it was, a, it was sort of like a attack on their discipline, which then I think, um, highly know, effective, may, may, by the yeah, way, highly, Andrew. highly effective attack on their discipline. Good job, Andrew. Which, which, which in itself was a growth hack, which then caused people to to email it to each other, um, which, which, which is why it was a hilarious, uh, hilariously effective. Um, so anyway, so and, and then and then the final note I'll I'll make on this is you know is it basically after that uh, I wrote that when I was an entrepreneur, and then after that, um, you know, almost every company has a growth team at this point, and so I ended up um, joining and running um, you know some of the larger growth teams at at Uber. Um, including the including the demand side, um, you know, the rider side of the network, um, and then and then now nowadays, 16Z, a lot of what I work with companies on is, um, and a lot of the tools that I use, you know, I it's like I'm I'm not running A/B tests and that kind of thing, but I always ask for cohort retention curves. I always look at landing pages. I always look at, you know, kind of um, you know acquisition numbers as part of my my selection process for new startups, and so it's it's become very you know useful. Anyway, free. I'll I'll pass it to you. Yeah. So, um, you know, my version of this is very similar, but I think the uh, sort of a reflection of Morgan's path where he came from more traditional marketing. My path is actually from engineering and sort of product work. I was working at a startup. Uh, I was an engineer at a social gaming startup before that was really even a term based in Boston called Conduit Labs. And we had launched this first game on the web that we called Loud Crowd. And we launched it with your typical at that time uh tech crunch launch, right? We like made a big splash. We waited for people to come. They showed up, they left. And that was the end of that. And we sort of were like looking at it like, wow, what just happened? Like we thought we were releasing this product. We worked on it for a bunch of time. It was super innovative. It was cool. It looked great. We had great deals with music labels, all this sort of stuff that we thought would make for a great product. And it sort of didn't really hit, right? It hit okay. And we were growing, but we weren't really accelerating that fast. And so uh, I think um, our CEO, Nabil, like started meeting with other folks that were working on similar things. We started like just sort of learning about what folks were doing on different social platforms uh, to drive growth. And I didn't even know the I didn't think we even used the word growth at the time. It was more like virality and, uh, you know, social network based growth and things like that. And we started working on some Facebook games and other things like that. And I, as an engineer, was just the one who was sort of data savvy and working on these things and building some product and trying to uh, learn how we could grow our product, how we could get it in the hands of other people. Because these sort of like, we sort of were so underwhelmed with like the tech crunch launch, (laughs) sort of like large blast, pay for some marketing and see what happens sort of story. So sort of came to this, you know, model of what I would call like engineering or product led growth. Um, on our own, just out of necessity of trying to drive growth on that product and some future ones. And I remember when I read Andrew's article, this is what, almost 10 years ago now, uh, I remember thinking, hey, that's weird. That's kind of what we're doing here, right? Um, And over time, sort of like got pulled more and more into this because ultimately at a startup, especially one like ours with only eight to 10 people at it, the question, how do we grow this thing? How do we drive business success? How do we build something that's successful, not just cool, was just central to what I was thinking about day in, day out. And so over time, sort of grew into this more like hybrid product, marketing, growth, engineering type role. And what really inspired me about that post and also about 
like this movement at the time, I think is what's so interesting about what growth hacking has turned into. The word has sort of come to mean tips and tricks to drive growth, like 50 ways to boost your conversion rate and things like that. But I think the original concept of it was really that like marketing, product, et cetera, are going to have to be much more data-driven and that the yes. future of marketing is engineering focused, hacking in terms of programming, not hacking in terms of tricking. Right. And I think like at some point we lost the lost the thread there. Um, and so what I feel like I have always worked on and now teach. So I, I, I work at Reforge as our head of programs, um, Andreessen Beck Company, where we work to try to help people turn into the future growth and product leaders um, is really like, how do you systematize growth? How do you think about growth as a real system, not as a series of tricks? not as a series necessarily of dollars you spend, but as a compounding set of loops and systems that can grow and sustain over time. And so now I spend my time thinking about that. Um, after that startup, we got acquired by Zynga. Zynga sort of like very well known for doing data-driven product management and having a really growth focused culture. That's sort of where I really learned to do this stuff super, super well. Because fundamentally, once we got in there, we were like, whoa, these guys are a lot better at this than we ever were. Uh, and so from there, went to build these kinds of teams and cultures at startups like Runkeeper and then uh, and Instacart, and then spent the last four years before Reforge at Slack, building a product-led growth team around B2B products. So I've always tried to like apply these same concepts and frameworks to different kinds of businesses, because I think fundamentally, what separates the best companies from the rest of companies, market leaders, is really whether they understand how do we build compounding growth loops that that help us be more successful over time versus trying to layer spike after spike after spike together into something sustainable. Great. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing. It's, it's so interesting to sort of hear like how you guys, you were sort of the OG, you know, got started in, in growth and sort of how it's evolved over time. So one thing that a couple of you alluded to that I want to sort of dig into further is, you know, there seems to be often this sort of cultural tension between brand building and growth hacking, like whether it's the functions or the folks who originally are in brand and comms versus like those who are in growth. And you, a couple of you mentioned how growth is all about like data-driven metrics. So like, how do, in your mind, brand people fit into growth hacking? Yeah, I mean, for me, they're they're not mutually exclusive, right? They they're highly complementary, and um, brand is the ultimate growth driver with the you know highest possible ceiling over a very long time horizon, right? It's like the greatest tailwind you can you can ever have, and is a result of a lot of things, both things that the company does. Thing, ways that people feel about the product, the problems it solves, and so it's like hugely important. You know, Shopify has an amazing brand. You look at the iconic companies; they are iconic for a reason. They have strong brands. So, um, I think they 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 go together, and they're they're both critically important. I think um, you know, I think you need both. You need people thinking about both types of things, and I think the things that they have in common is kind of goes back. To what Freed said um, is that they are both compounding, right? They are both things that you accrue over time, that you accrue benefits over time. Like if you get rid of this idea that a hack is a shortcut and you think of it more as like, hey, how do we leverage the software we create to create compounding incremental value for the business and for our users, and hopefully in the order of first for our users and then, then for the business? 
And how does that kind of stack up over time, much like compounding interest in a bank account, and use that mindset to drive how you think about the work you do in the area? You know, that's that's kind of the whole product-led growth mentality and, and thesis. And then brand is, is very similar, right? You have to uh, compound and build that over time. You can't just do flash in the pan things here and there and expect the brand to stick. You have a thoughtful, continuous kind of process that kind of drives that. Now, there, when you kind of break the two things down, there are certain things that you can do in branding that you might call like hacking, right? There's a long history of guerrilla marketing and, um, you know, newsjacking and all sorts of different tactics that kind of roll up into, you know, kind of an overall like branding strategy. But I, I think, you know, fundamentally, if you kind of kind of break the mental model of hacks as shortcuts, you have two compounding areas of work that really drive like tons of value to the to the top line of the, the company over time. So it's a very high level interest answer, but I don't know, Fareed or Andrew, any thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, man, I, 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 originally I, I was going to, you know, with, with, with Margaret here, I was going to make a series of controversial <laughs> assertions about oh, versus, just because uh, Margaret's not versus, here, versus you, you don't have to stop. Go for yeah, it. Yeah, you, no, no, you no, should. No. Let, let's do it. Yep, yeah, we're brand yeah. people over here. Yes, exactly. All right. So, yeah, I think th th this, this has been my observation. I think, I think the observation has been that at least for very early stage startups, seed and series A, that the focus should really, really be on growth, um, you know, above all else. And I think the reason is because, um, you know, it's, it's, it's what the investors want to see. The investors want to see, um, you know, they want to see traction. They want to see retention curves. They want to see, you know, real quantitative numbers going up and to the right. You know, yes, eventually kind of quote unquote good brand, you know, matters. But I, I think, you know, one of the really interesting, you know, observations has been that, for many, many, many of the you know biggest startups, they don't start by um, trying to build their brand actively. What they do is they become successful in the market first, and people come to under come, people come to see the product, and then only once they have that and it becomes well known, is there a broader effort um, you know around brand. And so I think I think you know Morgan, you're, you're right in a world where you know if you're at Shopify, you're at you know Facebook, and you have the resources to do both. But I think, you know, there, there's a very interesting question around, um, you know, if you have to choose um, and, and startups certainly have to choose because of the scarcity of resources, um, you know, I, I, I would take growth any day over over the brand thing. Um, and, 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 I, and I think that that's, you know, that, that's reflected, I think, in the in, in the at least the way that I think about, um, uh, you know, what requirements have to be, um, you know, in, in, in the founding team, you know, the founding team needs to have you know, a growth and a go-to-market, you know, person and a strategy basically from day one um, versus if they want to do, if they want to elevate their brand, that's something that you can, you know, you hire for. That's something where there's agencies that you work with and you often do that once the, the company is more established. So anyway, it's not that they're mutually exclusive, but I do think there's a sequencing thing. Um, and I think for especially for consumer startups, maybe B2B, it can be slightly different, but especially for consumer startups, um, you know, like if, if you, if you have an amazing brand, but then you don't have the numbers to back it up, like you're not going to raise your next round anyway. So I think, I think that, that, that's been, that's been my focus. Yeah. I think some of the exceptions though, that we are seeing are around either products that require a large amount of trust. I think Airbnb is like the best probably example of a company that I think probably invested in brand early ish. 
um, whether or not it was necessarily like brand marketing, but in building a brand around trust, safety, et cetera. And they took a lot of actions on that early on to drive that because like fundamentally their core growth loop doesn't work without a high level of trust, right? And then the other is like D to C commerce, I think is the other place where you see maybe early investment in brand because if your major loop is paid advertising, especially on social or other like places where you have to differentiate in a sea of lots and lots and lots of stuff, often like having a differentiated, unique and interesting brand can be the difference between, you know, great CPAs and not great CPAs and high LTV and non-high LTV. But I think in general, it is the case that brand is a sequenced problem. It's an accelerator on other loops versus um, something that you that most startups should be spending a significant amount of time, money and effort on early, at least from yeah, my perspective, depending on what, it depends on your engine, but like most of the time. Yeah, and there's probably a yeah. difference between like brand Right, understanding like what you stand for, how you want to show up, and then the you know the work of branding, like brand marketing and that type of thing. And so I, right. I think you you I think any good company and founders should think about like okay, what do we stand for? What do we you know what are the most important parts of of the product and the experience? Because that's a input into product market fit, right? But like whether you should buy billboards or invest in improving your like funnel sign up rate or engagement, re-engagement loops, I'm definitely going to go for the latter. Yeah, that's what I was going to chime in on. Um, just great. Back and I was going to say before you do, <laughs> Katie, uh, why don't you why don't you introduce yourself? I was going to say we just uh, we just had Katie uh, join the stage, and before I give you a chance to introduce yourself, I actually want to take a moment uh, to reset because I I know we've had quite a few people join since we started the conversation. So for those of you who joined uh, since we got started here, we're talking all things growth hacking. Uh, with some of the best in the business. Um, and so far, we've been talking a little bit about the role of growth hacking within marketing and within branding. Um, and if you've missed some of the conversation, you can go ahead and find it later on the A16Z live podcast. So with that, Katie, do you want to introduce yourself and follow up? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm Katie Baines. I'm on the marketing team here at Andreessen Horowitz. Um, I help our consumer and fintech portfolios. Um, but before I was here, I was on the um, brand and comms team at both Square and uh, Virgin America. Um, and so I was just going to kind of chime in there, maybe be a little controversial back with you, Andrew, and um, align a bit with Morgan here. But to me, like brand is really, I think there's like a misnomer in how brand works. A lot of people, I think, kind of jump to this idea of like brand marketing campaigns and like paying ad agencies and trying to create a brand, but I think brand is really not a top-down marketing campaign that's run by a CMO anymore. I think it's something that is just inherently built into a culture, and it's really driven by the CEO. And I think that a lot of that is, um, you know, the definition of all that you do as a company and how you do it. And I think that the companies that have figured this out have just like a tremendous arbitrage opportunity over the other companies. And, you know, coming from a place like Square, I think that's a really great example where there really was this tops down culture of, you know, we believe in building better tools for our sellers. And that's something that was integrated into everything that we did, um, whether you were on the product team or on customer support or, you know, on the comms team. And one of the first things I did when I joined there was on the comms side was we just built out this amazing database of sellers that we could call on um, for media stories because we knew that our, like the story was going to be so much more powerful told through the lens of our customer 
than, you know, hey, we're a Silicon Valley tech company trying to do X, Y, or Z. And I think that that's part of that brand. And and just to illustrate it further, like our, our product leads, they would just go hang out at the coffee shops and interview our customers and really try to understand, like, what do they like about this product? Like, how are they using it? And a lot of that, again, was like tops down, where we were really trying to create something that people loved and people cared about. And even though that can feel a little bit intangible, intangible, I think culturally there was yep. just this, this, this brand was just inherent. And I think that that's that mission that was just built in from day one. And, you know, to Morgan and Fareed's point, like Airbnb is another company that I think has just, that's like a day one tops down, like just built into the culture brand. And you can pay anybody to create a campaign, but I think like creating that sense of purpose and, and unity of mission is just, is something that, um, needs to come from the beginning. Yeah. So it's so interesting because like so much of what like I'm hearing and what you're saying is like this idea of growth hacking is, is really just this phenomenon of us becoming more data driven in both market, especially in marketing and in product. So I guess like get like a little bit provocative and maybe, you know, Andrew, I'll direct this one at you because I saw you had something there. So um, like is growth hacking like dead? Is this concept of like a team of, of growth hackers really just about getting better with how we're using product telemetry or better at product-led growth, better at data-driven marketing, or is it like kind of its own yeah. function? And so maybe as even a follow-up to that, if it's not dead, how do you go about structuring yeah. these teams? Yeah, so so what I was, you know, just to key off of something that, that Katie said on, on kind of how, sort of how, how tangible versus intangible do, do these efforts have to be? And I think that, you know, the, the big shift, I think the reason why, the whole concept of growth teams took off and the whole, the whole reason why people have even gotten excited about this topic is that in a world of, of, of startups where you're so resource constrained, um, the, the, the idea that you, you need a really tangible, really accountable thing, you know, I think accountability is like a really like key, key word here. And, and I think, you know, what, what's happened, um, you know, within, within kind of brand and, you know, I know we're make, starting to make some distinctions specifically around, you know, around this in this conversation, but it's like, the brand marketing efforts, which are typically not accountable um, for startups, like you really need like really high ROI for all of your efforts. And so I think what that's precipitated over the last 10 years has sort of become, you know, um, and, and, and I think this is this is a very interesting thing within within kind of the growth discipline is the idea that that basically the, the this whole concept of growth and kind of data driven, you know, growth efforts have actually become like insanely successful. It's been so successful now that it's probably, you know, a lot of the core ideas have actually been baked into um, what it means to be a product manager now um, in, in, in a deep way. And so, the, you know, I think many of you, if, if you've been in the industry for a long time, like there was a period where the product managers were all kind of core UX, like a little bit more designery. They would like work with customers, but they wouldn't go and A-B test and measure every single one of their features. But now like A-B testing their features is just like a thing that like everybody in the organization does, not just growth people. Um, and so I think that's, that's changed a lot. Now, all of that said, I would say, you know, and I'm curious if, if Morgan and Fareed, you know, like what, what you guys think on this, but I think that the, the reason why the growth teams have continued to persist is actually, is, is also because the fact is, is that, um, you know, a, a company can actually still get a leverage out of the hundredth AB test on their signup funnel. If they're also spending a billion dollars a year on performance marketing, which like a lot of companies, a lot of the larger tech companies do, um, doing that hundredth A/B test or doing that, you know, um, 
you know, testing out all these edge cases. Like if I'm on a low end Android phone and I try to sign up using this invite link, like what happens, you know, type of tracking and testing or, you know, uh, another example is like, when I when when I had left Uber, Uber I saw this data that Uber had over a million failed logins per week. People trying to log back into their accounts and 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 people not getting back into the accounts because they just couldn't. They were trying to use the forgot password password flow, and it just wasn't working. And so, like you know, a lot of like the core product organizations when these companies are just not incentivized to work on things like that because they're incentivized to work on big product redesigns. You know, that's like kind of you know, the, 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 the biggest possible, you know, like high impact, high visibility thing you can do in the product org. And so because of that, um, you know, a lot of these product, these growth teams still make a lot of sense and they still exist at most of the large, um, you know, tech companies as a result. Um, but, but, but it's, but it, but it definitely has a lot of the ideas and methodologies have now seeped into, um, you know, many, many other places pioneered by, you know, by, by the folks on the stage and also, you know, programs, you know, like Reforge, um, you know, have, have sort of, you know, brought this out to a much wider group. Yeah. I think there's two pieces of this that makes, you know, more centralized sort of growth teams continue to exist. One is the concept that Andrew talked about, which is that there's whole surface areas of product that are really important to the success of that product and actually have to change over time as your customer base changes, sign up flows, login flows, conversion funnels, things that drive retention, notifications, those kinds of things that I think like often get lost in the mix and actually have to be thought about holistically, right? They have to be thought about holistically because they're they're sort of the glue that connects all of the product together and often gets lost in the lines of traditional sort of, uh, you know, area of product organizational teams. Like I work on the platform and I work on enterprise, that kind of thing. Like growth tends to fill all the cracks in between that. I think that's one model that works. The second piece is that it's like fundamentally cross-functional. And sometimes it is very hard for teams on, for a marketing growth product, like for a bunch of different teams to coordinate on individual products and whether or not they all report under the same leader, it is often important for those folks to work very, very closely in a coordinated fashion because the notifications, the emails, the copy of it, the ads and the landing pages, like all these things sort of connect to each other in ways that are not as common for other parts of the product. And so it requires slightly different organization that said, I'm certainly seeing gro- the problem. The thing I don't like about the name for a growth team is I don't like if gro- the existence of a growth team relinquishes growth from everybody else's problem. Like growth is the only thing that matters in a startup at, at the end of the day. In a lot of ways, it is everybody's job, not just one team's job. So, for instance, like we called our team at Slack Lifecycle because it was about the lifecycle of activation to expansion to monetization. And because in some respects, we knew that growth was a much bigger problem than that, right? Like it is everybody's job. The enterprise team has to, like the sales team, like all those pieces have to be thinking about growth. No one person can carry the bag on the whole thing, uh, but that there's still this surface area that needs to be covered in order for growth to be successful. Morgan, I'm curious, like how Shopify, you have the title VP growth, like where does that fit into the organization? Like how did y'all decide to, is it centralized? Is it not centralized? Is it product? Like, how does that fit into the organizational structure there? Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, it really depends on the stage that the company's at and the size and and some other factors. So like, for example, I'll start at Facebook. Facebook has three different types of growth teams, right? They have the core growth team, 
this is respons they're responsible for monthly active users, daily active users, right? The core engine of the Facebook ecosystem, someone owns that explicitly. That's what they own, that's what they do. They do it all day. They do it you know, better than anyone uh, out there. Then you have product growth. Product growth is, our team, is a team, a centralized team that gets embedded into different product teams to help those teams figure out how to grow their products, right? So they get embedded with Messenger or Marketplace or Profile and so on and so forth, really focused on the services and experiences within the product and, and making those better through a lot of the tactics that we just kind of mentioned. Um, and then you have the growth teams within the products themselves. So like Marketplace will have its own growth team that's you know engineering and product-led, working on those core levers to drive adoption, retention, and, and all that good stuff. Uh, at Shopify, the way we're organized is we have a centralized growth team, of which I'm a part of, and we have growth marketing, which is essentially all of the performance acquisition, customer acquisition, and then we have growth product, which is the activation, trial success, and uh, retention parts of the puzzle. And we're really responsible for the number of merchants that use Shopify. Um, now, Shopify has a bunch of different business units um, from the shop app to Shopify capital and payments. And they each have their own embedded marketing and growth functions. And then we have Shopify Plus, which is more of a sales-driven high-end kind of GMV driven, uh, gross merchandise volume driven uh, business unit, which has its own marketing operation. So the, mo the most uh, familiar or similar analogy would be um, our growth team, the team that I'm a part of uh, is kind of like the core growth team at Facebook or we're responsible for like a core input into the Shopify flywheel. And we do that and only that um, while other functions like product marketing, brand, comms, Shopify Plus all sit outside of, of our organization. So I think it really depends on the stage you're at and then what, what problem you're trying to, to solve for. And I think one of the confusing facts or factors is, is that the idea of a growth hacker has been kind of slapped on everything. And, and really, a lot of people who are like, oh, I was a performance marketer. Now I'm a growth person, um, <laughs> yes. uh, you know, has For really sure. kind of confused the issue where I talk to a lot of companies be like, talk to our growth team and you talk to the growth team and they're like, well, I manage our paid search agency and we use a lot of data. So we're doing and And that's very different than the model that you see the, uh, the companies that Andrew's kind of referenced where it, that's um, right. it is like a real, pro it's a product team that is focused on a set of experiences and surfaces that are traditionally not owned explicitly by a product team to kind of drive certain outcomes. And so yeah. the, the nomenclature and the language has really kind of screwed up. You can go talk to any kind of mid-sized, mid-market company that's not like one of the FANG kind of set. And the idea of growth is like highly variable in, in these companies. My favorite was uh, I talked to an enterprise company a couple of years ago and talked to someone who was the head of growth, and it just turned out they were the head of sales. Like it was just a it was just a rebranding of a sales team, which I get it. That was at that company the main way that growth was driven, but it's sort of like the word when it starts to mean everything, it stops meaning anything. Yes, yes. No, I mean literally in the original in the original blog post, right? The way I was defining it specifically was around software and product and interdisciplinary you know, teams. Um, and, 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 and I think the, 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 maybe the one, the one mistake, um, if I were to, to, 
describe what the earliest definitions of this versus the way it's been implemented now is, you know, a lot of the early, early stage of this, um, you know, as, as Morgan and Free know, was oriented around individual people because we were basically talking about how does Sean Ellis describe himself, you know, to startups. It's like literally one guy. Um, and and what's been happen, what's been happening in the industry is now that it's sort of become industrialized and you can build entire growth teams. I mean, at one point, Uber's growth team was like 500 plus people. Um, you know, then you're talking about every possible type of discipline sitting under it, including designers and data scientists and product and you know product designer and, and product managers and engineers and, and on and on and on. Um, and then it has to be much more in the context of a team, not as a single like growth hacker. Um, and so I think that, yeah, and, and, and then as Morgan is saying, like, it basically was taken over by the, by the agency business, mostly like by freelancers and, and consultants and people who, um, you know, were glomming onto the, the new hot thing. So Katie, Katie, it sounds like yeah. you have something to say. Yeah, no, no. I just actually wanted to ask you to kind of dig in a bit more. Like, obviously I'm sure everybody knows, but Andrew has a book coming out this year called the cold start problem. Um, but I was thinking about, you know, when Morgan was talking about the size of Facebook's org, right. And it just seems so massive. And obviously Shopify is in such an impressive place right now as well. But, you know, Andrew, I'd love to just hear a little bit more color from you on like, how do you go from that zero to one and how do you break out of that cold start problem? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, just a little bit about the book. Um, so I've, I've been working on a book uh, for the last two and a half years, and it's you know specifically about um, companies that are built um, on on network effects uh, driven uh, you know dynamics. So that includes um, you know marketplace companies like like Uber and eBay, includes social networks um, you know like Clubhouse or Instagram and and, and WhatsApp, and it includes um, you know collaboration you know products like like Slack and Zoom and so on. And so you know when when you look at even though these are very 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 um, you know diverse product categories, one of the first things that you learn is um, they all share this common trait, which is that if none of your friends or colleagues or family or you know your your favorite creators are using these products, um, you have a cold start problem, and which means that basically um, you know uh, the, if, if if there aren't enough users already on the system, then you yourself are not going to want to use the product. Um, and so, uh, and 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 what ends up happening is to solve the cold start problem historically. If you look at what's what's happened out there. Um, you know, people have actually used these kind of very tactical like hacks in order to, um, you know, break through. And so that's been everything from Instagram's like photo filters, which were such a huge deal um, in the early years. And then now, you know, it's like I rarely see, you know, um, uh, photos that, that are that are explicitly filtered. Um, you know, you'll see, um, you know, Tinder, Tinder launched, uh, you know, using a, a whole series of um, college campus like parties. Uh, you know, at, at fraternities and sororities, and like that's not part of their strategy anymore. But it was what they used to like get started. Um, you know, uh, a Gmail used an invite-only system. Um, you know, to to to, to get started, you, you needed to, an invite in order to get um, your Gmail account. And and some of the you know really prominent um, you know Gmail uh, uh, addresses were being auctioned at, on eBay at one point. Again, that's no longer part of their um, you know go to market. And so one of the things is basically you know you find that there's a lot of these really interesting um, individual growth hacks that help. Um, and, and, and in this case, and you know this 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 sort of does refer to like the actual tactic kind of um, you know trick in order to get it up and going. But then once you get it up and going, then what ends up happening is you have to you end up deploying um, you know an entire team 
to come up with a framework for how your product is going to grow. And so if you look at a product like LinkedIn, although in the early days it was very oriented around, you know, Reed Hoffman inviting all of his, um, you know, kind of high-end colleagues onto the, onto the thing, and that was sort of their, their, their growth hack was all the, you know, invites and everything. Eventually, it really became about SEO and address book importing. And, um, you know, and those are the two major loops and, you know, sort of, you know, people join, they, they, they search for somebody's name on Google, they go to a LinkedIn profile, they end up, um, uh, you know, um, joining LinkedIn, they build out their profile that attracts more people from link, uh, from, from Google, and then like off you go. And so that becomes a scalable, you know, growth loop that then, you know, brings in more and more users. And like, there's, you know, there's, there's really only like maybe half a dozen of these really big growth loops paid marketing, SEO, viral growth, you know, a couple, couple others that can actually propel a company into hundreds of millions of users. There's just like not that many big, big, big growth engines out there. So I talk about that. And then, and then I talk about, you know, sort of what you start fighting, kind of the inertia that you start fighting at the high end, which is everything from like overcrowding effects. It turns out if you follow like, you know, a thousand people on Twitter, that if you follow 10 times more people, your experience might actually get worse, not better, because all of a sudden, you know, you stop seeing relevant content um, or, or, you know, similarly in a marketplace, it might make things hard to find. You know, that's something also obviously with Clubhouse, as more and more users join, the company needs to make a big investment in um, search and discovery. Otherwise, um, you know, becomes harder and harder. So, um, so anyway, so all all of these dynamics, you know, so you sort of imagine like the, the way, the way that I think about um, all this together is that there's sort of a central framework that unites um, these products that are driven by network effects that you can divide into these various phases. So it's like the first stage is like the cold start problem. And then I talk about the tipping point. I talk about, you know, scaling, scaling growth, kind of this escape velocity, you know, kind of thing that people talk about. I talk about hitting the ceiling. I talk about, you know, competitive moats and kind of this whole framework kind of brought together. And it sort of incorporates a lot of the core ideas about, um, you know, growth hacking, but also um, really laying them out distinctly in phases with the idea that you use different strategies and tactics depending on, um, you know, what stage of company, um, you, know, you know, what stage your product is um, and, and really, you know, kind of um, bringing the, the, the two together. Awesome. Thanks so much for, for sharing, Andrew. Uh, definitely. Oh, Tina, can I also just build on what Andrew said really fast? Because sure. there's a couple of interesting things that I think pulling the threads together from what Freed said, what Andrew said is like, first of all, um, the, the notion of growth can't just be by accident, right? Like someone has to own it, pay attention to it, work on it, understand how the company actually grows, understand what the core inputs are into that, and then constantly like iterate and work their way through it. Like Fareed mentioned, you know, things are constantly changing in the signup funnel as user behavior changes and that type of thing. Andrew mentioned, hey, early on, kind of like getting through that cold start, some of the most exciting things that you hear about in this space are non-intuitive ideas, not, you know, kind of uh, non-traditional channels and approaches, whether it's Airbnb's kind of Craigslist hack or Tinder's campus uh, um, kind of growth model, but that you, you need someone. And very early on, you know, like Fareed said, everyone should be thinking about this, but everyone should, should understand how the company does grow or is thinking about growth. So you kind of, you know, it's not about just like throwing a bunch of spaghetti against the wall and seeing what sticks, but it's really having an opinionated point of view on the inputs to growth and then having people focus on it. And then as you scale up, you might say, hey, we, we, we need a dedicated team because our product teams are, you know, busy creating other value, working on different parts of the product. Um, and, and, but you want to keep that focus on 
growth as a company priority because it's, you know, it's too easy to get distracted in new product builds, new marketing campaigns, and then ultimately losing uh, some of the, uh, the focus on, on what matters and driving the company forward. So, yeah, I think this is a really important point, which is that like, I think the job of a growth team or a growth leader is fundamentally to answer that question. How does this company grow? And you'd be surprised. I think a lot of people don't actually have a good answer to that. Like if they have an answer to it, their answer is we have these 50 different things that we do. And that's not really the answer to how does this company grow? If you want to build an enduring, long-lasting, compounding growth engine company that is meaningful venture scale over time, it's probably one of two to three core things that drive that growth. Um, those things, there are frameworks to like understand them. Uh, they are probably either some sort of paid paid driven thing, a content driven thing or virally driven thing. Um, there are subsets of each of those, but then your job is to understand the status of each of those things, where you're at in the life cycle, and then make sure your team and your structure and your tactics and strategy are aligned to the to where you are in the life cycle of each of those. And one of the big mistakes that companies get caught up in, I think, especially early stage companies is they're doing all this really wild, innovative, counterintuitive, interesting, weird stuff to get off the ground and to get going and never realize that like there's going to have to be a fundamental change in your approach if you want to go from there to like being one of the best companies in the world, right? Um, which is not about Tinder doesn't throw campus parties anymore. They don't, they don't have to do that because they have other engines that are working incredibly well, right? They have a marketplace dynamic and a cross-side network effect. They have virality versus through invites. They have paid ads that they use. Like they have other engines and sort of understanding that every stage of your company has a different set of approaches and evolving with it and not just going back to the same thing over and over again is what fundamentally separates like very, very successful companies from the rest. And it's important to sort of understand those frameworks. Yeah, and Fareed, by the way, that that is that is one of my favorite ways to interview people for growth jobs is I, I literally just ask them like, let's, you know, you pick a company and you say, hey, um, you know, Clubhouse wants to grow, you know, um, 4X in the next year. And like, how would you do it? And I right. think that's a very interesting, you know, thing because there's there is a class of person that takes that, and if they've been doing paid marketing for a long time, um, you know, or they've been doing SEO for a long time, they go straight to that. Right? right? They don't have any other strategies. Like that's their their they're like trained in a certain thing, and they just like go straight for that. Um, you know, versus like laying out kind of a broader strategy for how a lot of different pieces get to fit together, and then how they can work together in concert. You know, that's the answer I actually want to hear. Um, you know, and, 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 and if you're, and also, of course, if you're, if you're trying to grow really, really fast, really big, then, um, you know, there's only a couple levers that make sense. There's only, um, you know, it, you know, and, and like, like viral growth, um, in particular and, um, you know, and no, like one-off little project is going to drive like, you know, 300% right. year over year growth. And so I, I think I always find that to be a really good interview question. Yeah. Great growth is not just about running a million A-B tests and optimizing every variable. It's about identifying the key constraints to the loops that are going to drive long-term growth for your business, spending most or all of your energy on those things and understanding when the constraint has moved to somewhere else. Uh, Andrew pitched his book, so I'll pitch like, this is what we do at Reforge is like try to build frameworks out of 
the best successes from top leaders around the industry, extract like the things that they've learned from their examples, really build those into meaningful and reusable frameworks and help teach them to lots of folks. So if this is the kind of thing that you're interested in, I suggest you check it out. You know, I had a quick question I wanted to ask the group about, you know, we've talked a lot about um, the big appeal of growth being around measurability, right? Especially because back, you know, traditional marketing has not necessarily been known to be as quantifiable with having ROI. But, you know, one question I wanted to ask to the group is like, can you actually really measure everything? And, you know, what about the things that you can't actually measure, right? We don't want to discount, not to like go back and, and rehash the, the brand versus growth argument, but I imagine there are things that you can't measure, right? And so how how do you in general measure the success of your, of your growth teams without having measurement being like the actual barometer or end-all be-all goal, or is it? Yeah, I think the universe of what can't truly be measured is actually much smaller than people uh, understand and attribute. Like uh, a lot of things that are that people say you can't measure are actually just things that are hard to measure. It's a very important distinction, but one that I think is kind of uh, you know often often missed. And so um, I think it's important to like really push when we feel like we can't do something and really understand if that's just an assumption or actual truth. And um, often it turns out to be just an assumption. Um, and so I think, yeah, there might be a very small set of things that ultimately it's very hard to measure or you can't measure. But I think the universe of what you can measure is so much larger than people give credit for that it's it often in practice is kind of a red herring. Yeah, just a short add on to Morgan's is, is uh, I, I, think, I think there is a tendency for people in the growth discipline to measure things that are um, easy to measure and also can be quickly measured. And so you end up being oriented around like short-term retention, um, you know, short-term effects in the product. And which, you know, I, I think I think in many cases, short-term, what I often find is that short-term retention is actually very indicative of long-term, but and people end up not being, um, you know, not, not being oriented around, uh, you know, being able, being able to, be, to be patient enough to do the long-term. Now, interestingly enough, I'm gonna actually quickly give the counterpoint to myself. Like I've actually also, Heard the argument, which I think is very true, that actually using data to make decisions is actually slow, and that startups actually, um, you know, need to go fast. And as a result of that, you end up using intuition more than anything else. And you know, and, and the argument for that is when you use intuition, you're able to make decisions very, very quickly. You don't have to wait for data to trickle in, especially when you're a startup and you have very small customer bases, very small data sets. It may take weeks for a result to come in, and at some point, you should just you know, make the call more, more quickly and just go with your gut. I think that's also, that's, that's probably like, like one of the most powerful arguments for, for startups to, to use, um, you know, to, to, to just go with intuition and, and, and not data. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's such a good point. As a former uh, like builder myself, I, I can definitely relate to that. I think there are definitely moments where you can get into sort of data paralysis, right? And sometimes when you don't have a lot of information, you don't have a lot of data, you have to go with your gut and then uh, kind of test from there. Um, yeah, I always like to say that data should be a tool of humility, not decision making. You use data to understand whether the choices you've made were good ones. But when you use it to replace judgment, I think you can really slow yourself down and also lose the strategic North Star for the company in a lot of ways. Like great companies don't just chase data, right? Totally, totally. Yeah, um, what you can measure and what you should measure are two different things. Yeah. 
Great. So, um, Ubaid, why don't we head over to your question? Sure. Just a cup, one quick question on the follow-up um, regarding what somebody had just mentioned or, or around what you should versus shouldn't measure. Any, any examples of things you should not be measuring uh, when you're looking particularly at growth is kind of the first question. And then just a second uh, broad question is, um, is there like a particularly good format uh, or framework that anybody has when thinking about uh, content amplification for like a new content format? Um, and as a follow-up to that, any quick ways to like uh, validate or invalidate channels um, for that when you're doing that kind of testing? What do you guys think? Anyone on that? Free, do you want to talk about like channel testing at, and kind of like min scope kind of yeah, settings I think, like, and stuff like that? Te- yeah, look, testing new channels is really, really hard because sometimes it requires scale to understand whether a channel is going to work or not. So I think like the right place to start is just to understand from first principles, do we believe this channel is scaled? If successful, is scalable and will work for us, right? Like, do we have the fundamental ingredients for that? For instance, like it is worth, like if you build a freemium consumer product that has 1%, you know, conversion, like paid advertising may not be a great fit as a channel, right? Because like, it is very hard unless you charge a million dollars per seat to imagine that like on average, you know, you're unless you're the world's best performance marketer that you're gonna get CPMs that are gonna make that work, right? So I think there's a little bit of like first principle stuff you have to do and sort of like quick top down what channels make sense, like from a macro sense, like performance versus uh, content versus others. The next question is then what, what kinds of things on that channel are actually successful or which sub channels to that like overall strategy are effective. That's a much harder problem because often it requires again, scale for those things to work. So I think the key thing is like, look, I think it's, it depends on the channel is the way to think about it. But what I like to think about is like, are we seeing some signs of life here and improvement from you know experiment to experiment, right? Like, are we getting to the point where it's going to get through some minimum barriers? So I call that that's we call that the minimum scope. Like, what is the minimum scope for this loop? Like, what is the minimum scope to get something going so that we'll actually do this? For instance, and not quitting until you have actually put enough effort into it that you could have gotten to that minimum, if that makes sense. So for content, like you can't test SEO by making one page, right? Like that's unlikely to learn anything from it. You need a density of material. You need a certain amount of stuff. You need time. So you have to commit to the strategy and then you have to say, okay, what's the minimum amount of content that's going to get to the point where we have enough keywords covered and enough structure and enough domain authority that maybe something can happen. And really like understanding that you need to invest until that point before you evaluate success or not. That's my like overall, I know that's a little vague. It's a lot to <laughs> in a short amount of time, but I think that's roughly the way I like to think about these things is starting for first principles and then understanding what the minimum barrier. Awesome. Thanks, Fareed. And Yubad, thank you very much for your question. Um, Ket, did you have a question? I did. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Kat. I am a growth architect myself at BCG Digital Ventures. So my question is really uh, regard, regarding um, the, the cold start problem. And I, and I really love the way that you guys framed it out in the sense that there's only so much growth hacks that you can really try. But how, how many other, uh, I guess, like innovative growth hacks are there um, to the point that it just becomes like, 
the growth hack isn't enough to get you started. It's, it's really a, a product issue. Um, awesome. so yeah, so, just curious to understand that. So I think, cause I, the, I have a feeling and I apologize for how I think this is probably going to be our last question. So unless, uh, unless Farid and Andrew and Morgan, you guys can, can take one beyond this, but it sounds like our, our closing question here, um, is really this question of like some growth hack tips. And is there a point where it doesn't really matter what growth hacks you have? It really comes down to having a good product. Yeah, I, I to, to two two things on that. I think um, you know, one is what, what we what we have seen progressively in the industry is that um, you know you can't use the same tactics over and over again because consumers inevitably like uh, end up getting used to it, and the and the novelty effect goes away, and the novelty effect ends up becoming you know for better or worse like a strong part of you know part of the whole experience. The um, there's a really funny comic. Um, you know, that, 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 um, if you, if you Google it, you'll, you can find it where it used to be that, uh, you know, we got all this junk, you know, we got all this mail and then when we got an email, it was like, oh my God, I got an email. I'm so excited. Right. Like if you, if you all, all of you remember, there was a period where if you got an invite to a social product that was like, whoa, I just got invited to Friendster. This is amazing. Um, and then, you know, and then within a few years, (laughs) another invite. Thanks. Thanks. Another invite to another app. Thanks. You know, and then now if someone writes you like a letter, like actually writes you a letter, you're like, this is the most, this is my, now my new most prized possession. Um, so I, I think, I think that there's just this, you know, life cycle that these, um, you know, that these tactics go through and inevitably, um, you know, you have to keep coming up with new ones. That's kind of like what, what the whole industry has been about. Um, and you, and, and there's a playbook that gets created over, over the years. Um, and, 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 you know, like for example, HQ's, um, you know, push notification to get you into a show. Um, you know, you, even though that's a couple of years old, like I'm still waiting for more products to go and like, try that. Um, you know, I think a, a lot of, uh, why video games have become such a huge you know deal recently is become, is, is that, you know, when you play video games, it naturally produces video video is now being syndicated to TikTok and Twitch and a bunch of other things. That's now a very viable kind of, you know, growth hack. And so getting influencers to play your video games is now like kind of this amazing go to market, like that will last for a certain number of years. And then it'll just be go into the standard repertoire and like be less of an effective thing. And so I think, I think that's, that's exactly what we see. And, and, you know, I, I've, I've blogged about this under the heading of law of shitty click throughs that basically, you know, all these marketing tactics degrade over time. Very pessimistic, but I think realistic view of of you know how things are. But it keeps uh, keeps Farid and Morgan and myself in business because that means that we're constantly needing to stay on the edge and innovate. And then and then to you know Kat's other question is you know I, I tend to think of all of these growth strategies as a magnification of whatever product market fit that you have. And so if you if you you know if you have really aggressive you know growth strategies to a product that's working. You can really supercharge it. I think that's ultimately like the story of Facebook, um, which which has been very aggressive, you know, over over the span of many years. You know, versus when you when you use all of these tactics to you know to Fareed's point for for products like Tagged or High Five, which are not as good social networks, like they, th- those just didn't work out. And so I think I think you know you, you have to think of it as an accelerator as opposed to something that can cause product market fit. Yeah, I think the foundation of every product's growth has got to be word of mouth and word of mouth is fundamentally driven by a product that people really, really like and strong retention. Um, It is only then that those other things work. There are exceptions. 
And I do think that for network products in particular, marketplaces or networks, there's a lot you have to do to drive density early in order to make those products successful. The world's greatest product with the wrong network in it is not going to be successful. So you need like product network fit, so to speak. And you see this with things like Facebook and, and uh, Clubhouse and others where there's this idea of narrowing scope as a way to get off the ground. And so if you are building a network product and it's not really getting somewhere, I do think you have to ask yourself, is the product not good enough or is my starting network incorrect? Because both can land the same way, if that makes sense. So I think that's the thing that's important for non-network products. I do think like fundamentally, if you don't see some meaningful word of mouth growth, just people telling other people because they think it's interesting, plus some solid like baseline of retention. I think it's not the right time to be like invested in optimizing things or adding new loops or those kinds of things. It's, it's not going to save you. So Fahad, uh, what was your question for uh, for Andrew and Fareed? And thank you, Andrew and Fareed, for, uh, for staying a few minutes. No past. problem. Hi, everyone. Thanks for staying a couple extra minutes. So my name is Fahad. I'm the founder of WeAreHue.org, which is uh, Hue, a nonprofit that's focused on helping people of color get career paths in marketing and basically get access to new opportunities. The question I have for the group is really about how you think about allocating budgets to make sure that you're putting the right support levels so that you can actually drive the growth and drive the level of scaling you need to do. You know, I've met folks who have you, really different exactly by philosophies like when it comes dollars, to budgeting. And so like dollars, yeah like, yeah. like like how would you think about, hey, I want to grow to 2x, 3x, 4x, whatever it might be. How are you going to go about actually allocating that budget? And how are you thinking about real sort of performance marketing driven, uh, you know, tactics versus brand versus whatever else there may be? That's a great question. I mean, this is a, you know, this is one of those it depends questions that's uh, hard to answer in the general form. But again, I'll go back to like foundational thing, which is like, what are my core hypotheses about answering the question? How does this company grow in the in the long, medium term? And also what stage am I at? And then where do I feel like I should focus my resources in order to drive success on that core hypothesis as quickly as possible, and either get to a success or failure point? I think in general, like it is bad to spread your marketing priorities or product growth priorities across a bunch of different uh, a bunch of different priorities versus like focusing in one single area because there are things like economies of scale and also just like learning execution loops right like the more you do in a single area the better you get at that versus trying 12 different things in 12 different directions and learning a little bit about 12 different things. You'd rather learn 12 things about one, one direction. Right. So I think in general, I would, I would, I would focus and I would, I would be, I would be focused on putting most of that budget, whether it's dollars or people or time or energy on the areas of the product where you believe you have the highest leverage and strong hypotheses that you're trying to prove or disprove. That's the, that's, I mean, it's vague, but uh, the best I can do in general. Yeah, I, I was just going to quickly say, I think, you know, part of, part of, in the context of growth hacking, you know, and, and growth teams and everything, the reason why budget has, has, has historically been difficult to, you know, allocate in that way is like budget is usually associated with like marketing. It's, and it's also one of the reasons why um, a lot of the product driven startups um, tend to not like traditional marketing is because they, they don't want to spend the money. So, so they don't want to, they, they, they don't want to put money into, into, into performance marketing. They don't want to put money into hiring a bunch of agencies. And so 
the ideal version is that um, you know that that you spend very very little, the very few dollars um, generally. Now that doesn't solve your actual problem though, which is then like if you're if you're not spending a lot of marketing dollars, um, and 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 the best products do not spend very many marketing dollars. What you, what they do spend on is they spend on headcount, um, and and they spend on you know new product initiatives. And I think for that. You know, you, you end up, um, you know, just like just like any, you know, like similar to what Fareed was talking about. If you get in a world where you, you know, you're trying to three x, and you know that there's a gap, you know, you think that if you don't do anything, the product is just going to two x. You might do a series of new initiatives and things um, in order to generate more active users, um, and you start you start you know budgeting and predicting those, and you might say like, oh well, if we want to do international and we want to do these, you know. Um, you know, new, uh, you know, sign up models, we want to support like these new types of devices. And then you try to back out like how many engineers and how many product managers do you need to actually do that. Um, and, and so, you know, and, and, and it's the same type of exercise that you would need in order to, um, uh, you know, for, for product teams to be able to decide how, um, you know, how, how these core innovations also work. So, um, anyway, so I, I would just go, I would just go for that and, uh, you know, and, and, and go from there. Awesome. Well, Fareed, Andrew, I really appreciate you guys staying uh, a little past a huge thank you to everybody in the audience who, who hung with us through this whole show and to, uh, to my co-host, uh, Tina this week. Um, uh, we have been 4B without Margit this week. And uh, for yep. a full lineup of A16Z shows, you can join uh, or follow A16Z Club on Clubhouse. Um, or visit a16z.com slash clubhouse. 